2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu.
0: And I'm Alex Diamond.
2: And we are the hosts of this special series.
0: Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences.
2: This special series centers the dilemmas tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards
0: this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections.
2: Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you.
0: Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano-Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
2: And on that note, let's begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ethnographic Marginalia. Today, we are in conversation with Haseen Shams. Tassin is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, St. George, and the Bissell Haid Research Fellow at the Center for the Study of the United States of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Today, we are going to be discussing the ethnographic research that Tassin conducted for her new book, Here, There, and Elsewhere, published by Stanford University Press in 2020. The book breaks new ground by showing how immigrants are vectors of globalization who produce and experience the interconnectedness of societies, not only of societies of their origin and destination, but also the societies in places beyond, what Thaseen calls, "elsewhere." Thanks Thaseen for taking time out to talk to us today. We feel so privileged to be in conversation with um, with the author of this fantastic new book amongst us. Oh, thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine.
0: So Tassin, we, we, we often begin with, uh, with this question for our guests, um, just as a way of understanding sort of what drew them to the discipline. Um, so how did you become a sociologist and why ethnography in particular?
1: Uh, thanks for uh, these questions, Alex. I actually begin uh, my courses with this uh, anecdote. So that's a great place to start, I think. Um, so... My book and really the beginning of my journey into sociology is very much rooted in my personal story. I am a first-generation Bangladeshi immigrant who first arrived in the United States with her family as a teenager. But my first exposure to the United States was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a small, predominantly white, conservative college town where my parents still live. I did my undergrad there. And that was my first introduction to a society where I was no longer the privileged religious majority uh, or the elite class minority. So suddenly, in just in the span of one day, I became a marginalized, stigmatized outsider. I was. I spoke differently. I spoke with an accent. I was not black. I was not white. So often in every uh, situation almost... I was the only one who sounded different, who looked different, who had a different cultural, uh, religious uh, background. Um, As we know from uh, reading uh, Du Bois, that uh, sometimes that positionality of being in the margins gives you a different view of society. And that is uh, what I was going through uh, when I first uh, moved to Mississippi. I fully intended to be uh, a doctor, (laughs) and um, I was taking courses uh, to that effect. But then I had to take um, an Intro to Soch course as part of my required uh, liberal arts uh, curriculum uh, at my undergrad institution. Uh, So I took the Intro to Soch class that uh, took place in a huge auditorium where, you know, students are packed elbow to elbow, like canned sardines. And um, the professor started the course with uh, a lecture on the sociological imagination. And as I listened to that, I felt for the first time that, wow, my individual story mattered. I lived in society as much as society lived in me. And I began to ask whether... Uh, other people in Mississippi uh, who came from similar backgrounds had the same kinds of uh, experiences. I had. I was in honors college, so I had to write a thesis, and I wanted to do a thesis that uh, explored this question. So I started um, interviewing. Uh, you know, whatever, whoever I could find uh, through snowballing who were Bangladeshi, who were Muslim. And that was my first real uh, taste of doing qualitative research. Uh, The very small handful of Bangladeshi uh, immigrants I knew in the area through my parents, I started to take an academic interest in the conversations we were having, the experiences that we shared in our tiny little community. Um, And that was also my first taste of doing participant observation. Um, So that was how this began, um, through a combination of my personal story and an intellectual curiosity. And by the time that I was done with that course, with my um, junior year, I knew that I found my calling And I wanted to carry on this uh, line of questioning. Um, And uh, I went to UCLA, uh, where it was my dream school because of its strong migration program. And I continued asking these questions, and I continued asking uh, these questions in that way, using those methods.
2: Uh, And that's how it all began. you know, you introduce the methods of the book with a with a very reflexive reckoning of um, of who you are and how your identity and social position informed your methodological approach to the book. And listening to you talk about how you became a sociologist just kind of reinforced this way of thinking about um, analysis about about uh, sociological work itself. So, could you tell us a little bit about how being Muslim American, as well as being a woman. Um, the intersectional locking of these two embodied and perceived identities, how they shaped your fieldwork?
1: Well, I'm really glad that you brought up the question of gender for two reasons. First, it was hugely important, a crucial part in shaping my experiences uh, during fieldwork. Uh, And I talk about how those experiences shaped some of the findings, some of the observations I was able to make and I was unable to make in my book. And the other reason is that I feel that because of the nature of my book, I wasn't able to fully explore uh, these intersections uh, of my religion, my ethnicity, my class with, with gender. So thank you for giving me this opportunity Um, To give just one example, uh, uh, I come from a Muslim background, but I don't wear a hijab or any kind of explicit marker that paints me as Muslim. Uh, Unless someone asks what my name is, I could be any other brown person uh, from any other cultural or religious background. But nonetheless, often I was perceived as Muslim. Uh, as Muslim American, just from how I looked, mm-hmm. and based on my accent. So immediately, it, it, you know, I, I felt after um, uh, coming to the United States that hmm, people are looking at me, perceiving me uh, differently. Uh, before I go into my fieldwork, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, uh, back in Mississippi, when I would walk from one building to another um, at my undergraduate institution uh, for my classes, I had more than one interactions where uh, evangelical students would stop me and want to convert me to uh, to Christianity, uh, knowing uh, that I was Muslim. I have never met these people. I don't know how they uh, came to know of me or what they even saw when they saw me, but they, they knew somehow that I was Muslim after hearing my name or talking to me, and they wanted to convert me to Christianity. So this sense of otherness uh, that, I, uh, that I experienced in the U.S. Uh, gave me a sense of understanding that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm an other here. Mm-hmm. Even before I began, uh, the, I became a sociologist. I had these interactions. This looked a little different among the Muslim American communities uh, where people took for granted my Muslimness and I had to project uh, to what extent am I Muslim? To what extent is my religiosity? Mm-hmm. Um uh, and with that came this question of, well, am I a good Muslim? Meaning, am I like a very pious, practicing religious Muslim, uh, as opposed to am I uh, am I not practicing? Am I, you know, agnostic, or uh, am I a bad Muslim? Uh, right? Uh, and then, uh, given that I am a woman, it also brought on various gendered. Um, uh, preconceptions, like, am I a good Muslim woman? Uh, what that meant was, uh, do I live with my family? Am I married? Um, do I date? Uh, if I am, if I am looking for a partner, what kind of partner am I looking at? Am I, you know, am I, um, uh, interested, uh, in, uh, non Bangladeshi or non-Muslim, uh, uh, Men and what that what that meant. Mm-hmm. So uh, immediately it was from Mississippi when I moved to Los Angeles and conducted research for this book, I, I was looking at different uh, a different dimension of the intersections that I was struggling with in Mississippi. Um, sometimes being a woman uh, within that Muslim community meant that I had a very narrow, Uh, entry into uh, the the male uh, spaces in the community, Uh, especially in the religious uh, communities that meant very limited access because uh, most of the public spaces were male-dominated, they were gender segregated, if not formally, informally, implicitly, which were just as powerful um, uh, one time I remember that I wanted to uh, I went to um, uh, a cultural uh, secular uh, space, uh, celebration of some kind on a college campus. And uh, there were lots of students from the Muslim Students Association there. And I thought that this would be a great place to recruit interviewees. And I extended my hand uh, to shake their hands when I introduced myself. Uh, I realized that that the man did not want to shake my hand, which, uh, which I couldn't uh, at first understand. Like, why? Because these were young, college-going men. So I just took for granted that I would just introduce myself like I do with anyone. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the case. Um, In another, uh, to give another example, um, far fewer uh, men responded to my recruiting strategies uh, through texts uh, or through emails uh, than women. And sometimes I had to actively ask the women to connect me to their male friends you know, because I wasn't having a lot of luck uh, just on my own. And I found that my women respondents were a little reluctant to do that themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I later realized is that they themselves didn't want to uh, put themselves in a situation where they were beholden to their male friends somehow mm-hmm. for uh, doing a favor um, and being interviewed uh, for me. Mm-hmm um uh you know whenever I went to some cultural uh ceremonies or organizations uh e- organizational events um it was informally uh gender segregated uh even when I went and sat where all the men sat just to hear what they were talking about i had um you know I had a very um uh, Direct experience of someone telling me go sit with the women. Uh, so it, it it clearly the fact that I was gen uh, that I was a woman, I was an unmarried young woman uh, living on her own uh, in the context of the Muslim American community meant that I had a very gendered access into uh, into the spaces that I was able to uh, make my observations. Um, obviously, that in itself reflects uh, contours and cleavages uh, of the communities that I was studying. But while doing fieldwork, that was obviously uh, a source of frustration.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Um, it it seems really striking these kinds of examples and the way it's shaped um, fieldwork. Yeah, it's really come to the fore. Thank you for answering that with so much you know, honesty and um, reflexivity. Oh,
1: my pleasure. Thanks for asking
0: that question. Tassin, I, I actually thought that your, your book was really notable in the extent to which you engaged with these questions of, of reflexivity um, and p- positionality and, and your experiences in the field. You know, I thought that was a real strength of the book and helped the reader understand not only, you know, where the research was coming from, but uh, the communities that you are studying. Um, so I was actually wondering if, if this was like a conscious choice, do you, think, uh, do you think it came out of the fact that you shared a lot of characteristics with the, the population that you were studying um, as a, a South Asian Muslim immigrant? Um, yeah, why, why so much, which I, I, I thought was, was amazing, was really, uh, was really a strength of the book, but why so much attention uh, to this in your writing?
1: Um, Thanks, Alex, uh, for the kind words and for this question. Um, I wanted to tell as honest a story as I could. Um, And by that, uh, I mean honest in uh, doing the best I could to analyze what I observed unfolding on the ground in the immigrants' day-to-day lives, and honest in the sense uh, that I I was the tool of measurement. as an ethnographer, I was viewing the world, whatever that the readers would read will be through me. So um, it wasn't a very conscious choice that I wanted to be very reflexive or that I had to um, that you know I had to reorient my writing somehow to bring in more reflexivity about my positionality. Uh, it just came from that uh, uh, that intention to tell as honest a story as I could, and people were responding to me. I was I was responding back. Uh, sometimes they didn't respond to me, and that itself was a finding. Um, how people responded to me as an insider when they perceived me to be an insider, as opposed to an unfamiliar new face. Those were findings and there is no other way to convey the nuances and the importance of those findings, the patterns and the differences without talking about myself, my positionality. Because how people were responding to me is as important a part of the story as what I observed um, uh, them doing or saying. Um, so, uh, that's, uh, I think that's how, uh, my positionality and my reflexivity, um, entered into the narrative. And, um, the other thing is that, uh, you know, this is something that I had to wrestle with, I had to struggle with, uh, when I was conceptualizing, uh, the whole, uh, whole project. Uh, because if people are always responding to me, if all my observations and interview responses are reactive to what I am what I am saying or what I look like or what I sound like or what I'm asking them, I wanted something that would balance that out. And that led me to look for organizational documents, not just in Los Angeles and California, but in other places of the country to look at social media uh, data where I was not present when people responded to something, uh, you know, something that would balance out this uh, interviewer effect. Uh, so even when I was writing uh, the book, I, I went back and forth with my notes to the data that I had collected from the organizational documents and from the social social media notes that I had taken as well, uh, to see, well, this is the kind of response that I was getting. And this is the kind of response they were my participants, the larger uh, Muslim American community and the, and the national and the global audiences as well were making on these topics. So I had to go back and forth um, uh, to, yes, tell uh, that story, uh, what I was observing and how I was analyzing uh, the data through my point of view, but also what was happening beyond my reach.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, um, it so happens with qualitative research that we can take stock of the methods that we used almost after doing fieldwork, right? Because, like, things are so dynamic and contingent when we're in the field. But I was curious to know, so what ended up being your repertoire of methods and um, what did a typical day during field work look like?
1: Uh, No control over a typical day. (laughs) Right, yeah. Um, Sometimes I would have like two or three people respond to me, uh, giving me their time, uh, like blocks of time on one day back to back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would have days when I didn't have anyone um, Mm -hmm. uh, respond to my requests for interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, whenever possible, I would myself go to different spaces when I didn't have interviews scheduled to see what was going on. If I could, you know, just if I could just sit down at 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 an ethnic restaurant and see what was going on during the week as opposed to a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um so it was uh, a number of uh, different things that I wanted to incorporate as long as I felt that every day I did something to uh make some progress mm-hmm. um I was I was happy uh even if that meant that I'm going to sit down from 9 till 8 uh just looking through newspapers in the major national um outlets to see, you know, what what was the news, what were the topics that generated a lot of uh, attention uh, pertaining to Muslim Americans or that, okay, I need to uh, sift through all my social media data to see what are, you know, categorize them to, into different topics. Um, so a typical day in fieldwork sometimes meant I was out there collecting interviews almost all day, um, you know, Ubering back and forth or taking the bus back and forth. So It meant just collecting two interviews sometimes meant the entire day. Sometimes it meant a, a relaxing day, um, uh, relatively speaking. Um, taking notes at, you know, a a public hangout space uh, within an enclave or something like that, spending an entire day just talking with my participants, just hanging out with them, seeing what what they did and just taking a passive role and letting them decide what to do with the day, how to hang out, Um, or just staying at home, um, you know, Working with uh, the notes that I had already collected, so there is no typical day. It depends on, you know, when you're doing field work. At least in my case, I completely had to surrender my schedule to mm. um, to my participants' schedules. Right, so yeah, yeah. I had very little control um, over over my day to day routine. Mm-hmm.
0: So one, one thing that you actually just mentioned was your use of social media um, and Facebook. Uh, and You just said that it was sort of a way to get past interviewer bias because, you know, that was not necessarily directed at you. Um, but it also seemed like Facebook and other social media was for um, your, your research participants was something that uh, was actually a central part of how they got news uh, formed and expressed their, their political opinions. Um, and sort of a central argument of the book has to do with uh, the role of politics elsewhere, um, such as the the Middle East for South Asian immigrants and sort of how they understood uh, their place within the country and the meaning of being a, a Muslim in, in the U.S., um, I don't think I'm doing your, your argument justice at all, and we recommend that people read the book for for the full argument. Um, but I wanted to ask about uh, about this use of Facebook. Um, was this something that you'd planned from the start? Um, was it something that sort of started happening? Where you did you end up as Facebook friends? Uh, this was actually, you know, I do research in a, a rural community in Colombia and hadn't thought that Facebook would be a force here. And people just started friending me and I started seeing that there were things that, that came out on their Facebook that were, that were interesting. Um, so was it kind of a, a happy accident like that or was this an intentional choice that you made um, beforehand?
1: Uh, it was absolutely not intentional. <laughs> uh, I was halfway through my field work um, when I realized that I need to collect social media data uh, because I would spend the whole day um, with uh, a group of participants and would feel quite happy, uh, thinking like, "Hmm, okay, I think I understand what matters to them the most. I think what I think I have a grasp on their everyday lives, their everyday um, uh, concerns," and then I would meet with them again the next day and they would be talking about things that happened yesterday that I have no idea about. (laughs) And what I realized was that they had a completely separate virtual life where they were interacting with one another. They were talking about gossip and, you know, it was just, it was like an entire, you know, entirely different, but very real Mm-hmm. Uh, world, um, so that's when I realized that no, I I have to systematically collect this data now. Um, but Alex, like you said, that it wasn't intentional. Um, when I started entering the um, the my my field work, um, it be- became uh, it was a it started very organically that people would befriend me or I would befriend them. Uh, just to initiate a kind of contact, or I would follow somebody uh, on Instagram, um, and uh, it, it was uh, halfway through my fieldwork when I realized that when I go on Facebook, what I see trending it is actually an important source of data, because again, I am a part of this community. Uh, I am trying to embed myself in, into this community, and what my social network, what my participants and their friends who are not my participants were talking about uh, is valuable data. So that's when I got my, um, you know, modified my ethics um, uh, review um, and um, I started systematically collecting uh, the, the social media data. I should add that every social media data that I have uh, Collected or talk about in the book um, uh, has a public setting, or at mm-hmm. least when I collected this data. So I was very concerned not to. Uh, so because of the the strategic reason of incorporating the Facebook data, I was in a dilemma that I, I will not I will not tell them that I am collecting this data mm-hmm. because then I I do not have that uh, that balancing out of the interviewer effect. But that meant that I cannot take advantage of anything that they share privately right. uh, among them or something that I can see that they have shared with only a handful of people. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to take advantage of those things. So the only things that I collected and I discuss are things that share they shared publicly, which I think is also an important thing to consider how um, Facebook has this Pseudo public, pseudo private uh, kind of thing going on mm-hmm. that people can select uh, their level of privacy or their level of engagement. Um, so whatever I selected was something that my participants or their friends, uh, even Facebook celebrities, um, and uh, you know they wanted out there.
2: Yeah, I think that's a that's a really really useful way of thinking about how to incorporate. Um, you know, digital practices of our interlocutors into fieldwork without necessarily letting them know every single time it uh, retains that organic uh, emergence of their communication online and uh, is still ethical. so thank you for for being so clear about exactly how you were able to do this. I'm sure a lot of people who are kind of stuck at home during a pandemic trying to do uh you know uh, ethnographies of Facebook. Um, or Twitter will appreciate this, this really clear, uh, spelling out of how you, you did, uh, you did work that, um, for this book. But, you know, speaking about presentations, um, in chapter four, you so beautifully and very carefully show the several processes, um, and pressures that underlie individual presentations of being, um, you know, in quotes, a good Muslim, right? And, um, the story you start with is of Anwar. Um, shows how an act like littering is tied to a larger issue of geopolitical and racialized anxieties. And in the chapter, you reveal the frictions that Muslim Americans live with on an everyday basis between being on the one hand a model minority and on the other hand perceived as threats to national security. What I found particularly interesting is how you point out uh, the fact that ethnographic data complicated the narratives you were seeing emerge in your interview data. And you say that, um, in quotes, if I had relied on interview responses as my only source of data, I likely would have found their Muslim identity or the stigma attached to it to affect every part of their lives, end quote. While there is obviously a lot in the chapter that you cannot reproduce during a podcast interview, I wanted to invite you to tell us a little bit about the affordances of ethnography, perhaps through the particular case of how the hijab and the burqa were implicated in performances of being moderate Muslims and what that even means? Uh,
1: That's a great question. Um, So when I first started doing interviews, um, especially with people that I was not very familiar with, uh, interview data generated responses that would seem very aloof, as if religion didn't matter at all. Um, so exactly the opposite of what I wrote there, that it would seem that, you know, based on surveys that have been collected previously by other um, um, data organizations, I knew that, you know, say X, Y, Z are important for the Muslim American community. Mm-hmm. But I would ask questions, is X important to you? Um, and this was when I was just testing out the questions, right? Right. Um, uh, they really, like, oh, not really. Mm-hmm. I never thought about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right? It was mm-hmm. very aloof. It was very detached. Uh, but then uh, when I um, uh, started making myself more familiar uh, in their spaces and they got to know me a little bit more, uh, besides being the person who interviewed them, um, I saw that religion is very much important in their everyday lives. The friendships that they make, um, you know, the kind of food they eat, uh, where they usually hang out, their best friends as opposed to friends that who they were not very close uh, to, they were all shaped by religion. Uh, even college students who would uh, find their college mates uh, happen to, you know, Muslim students tend to uh, dorm with other Muslim students. How did that happen? Well, they have. it happened because they met each other through the Muslim Students Association, or the parents connected each other because uh, the parents knew each other through the local mosque. So um, when I started uh, doing participant observation, I, I saw that, well, what they were saying and how reality is are very different. Religions is very influential in their day-to-day lives, um, despite their responses uh, in the interviews. On the flip side of things, when I became a familiar figure, I was perceived to be um, an insider, whatever that means to my respondents. And uh, one strategy was that I would never bring up religion myself to see when religion comes up, or I would never bring up politics explicitly uh, myself, but see when they would um, bring up politics. But when they did, when I would ask them uh, more in-depth questions, it was a very sweeping um, answer sometimes, as if religion and politics affected every part of their lives, Mm. Uh, That They were stigmatized as Muslims, um, as racialized bodies in every single aspect of their lives. Again, I would spend the whole day with them and and I would see that's not the case. Mm. Uh, There were spaces when these things didn't seem to matter. A a far more um, uh, important topic for them, a concern for them would be very mundane, generic things like Um, You know, uh, going to the office on time, uh, deciding what classes to take, um, what to pack for the children's lunch that day, or, uh, you know, uh, budgeting uh, uh, for the week, um, figuring out what uh, to make uh, for the rest of the, you know, dinner or lunch for the rest of the week. So it's important, uh, Rogers Brubaker says this uh, as well, that it's important not to take the Muslimness of the respondents as this overwhelming, overarching thing that defines every element of their lives. It's important Mm. not to essentialize the Muslimness of the participants uh, just because they happen to come from a Muslim background. Mm -hmm. So participant observation was an important uh, way to um, see, uh, you know, the similarities and the differences between what the participants said in during recorded interviews and what they did when I was not, uh, you know, uh, formally interviewing them. Um, for instance, um, during the interviews, somebody would say that, uh, you know, they are practicing Muslim. Well, what does that mean? Well, that would mean that they would pray five times a day and they would fast during the Ramadan. But then I would spend the whole day with them and not once would they get up to pray. Uh, you know, when it was time to offer uh, prayers so it was ethnography was very important to to see the these differences and also come up with an explanation why is it that there is a discrepancy between what the respondents were saying and what they were doing and the way that i uh, um explain this in my book is my positionality my presence there that when i asked them about their religion again going back to uh, something we talked about at the beginning of this podcast is in within the context of the Muslim community, asking about religion sometimes meant performing as a good Muslim, which means, uh, you know, showing a religiosity. Whereas in a public setting, being a good Muslim meant the complete opposite that you are secular, that you are mm. not really religious, you're not really practicing. Um, so, um, just deconstructing the various meanings, the layers of meanings attached, and how they varied from public to private, uh, when studying this Muslim, good Muslim category, uh, is uh, itself, um, you know, a really uh, deep ethnographic project. That there are just so many layers and so many interactions that determine. Uh, these meanings, but on top of that, uh, it's important to trace those local import, uh, local boundary work, local interactions, to what was happening at that at a global setting. Why is there a, a pressure uh, to perform as a good Muslim? What does the word good actually mean? Mm-hmm. These all connected, as i show in my book to global discourses about muslims and islam not just between the so-called muslim world and the west mm-hmm. but also within the muslim communities themselves um did you miss anything uh, that uh, that you asked in your question
2: um i guess i was just curious to see how this ties into the i guess the current discussions around the hijab and the burqa in france but how did that play out in in your particular ethnography like where were uh, things about um, you know the gendering of good muslims how did how did that um, come to the fore
1: well they, they, it, it's such a complex question because the hijab and the burqa any kind of veiling um, has so many uh dimensions uh, someone who doesn't wear a hijab who does uh, a woman who doesn't wear a hijab but identifies as Muslim. They had participants like this um, that I talk about in the book, too, I believe. Uh, they felt that they uh, their Muslimness is somehow uh, defined by whether they wear the veil or not. Mm. And that was a source of frustration for them. Um, at the same time, people who did wear uh, some sort of the veil, uh, they felt a different kind of pressure that A, the community is putting them, the Muslim community is putting them on a pedestal that they cannot make any mistake right. Right? because they are seen as, you know, uh, the good Muslim uh, woman who must always live up to that image, right? Mm-hmm. That they're being put on a pedestal. And B, that they were again seen as representatives of Islam, but from the public. There too, they cannot make any mistake. And by mistake, I mean showing for anything less than um, uh, hyper-positive, right? Um, uh, um, uh, I remember uh, a participant who doesn't wear the burqa, but wears a veil. Um, She uh, conveyed to me uh, an interaction that she had in LA traffic, which itself is very, very frustrating for anybody, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but she was stuck in traffic, she was wearing the veil, uh, and someone called her Osama Osama. And I asked her, what did you do? She said, I smiled as widely as I could. And I made sure that she saw me smile. I would not show anger. I would not um, you know, perpetuate the stereotype of every unfriendly, aggressive Muslim woman. Um, at the same time, uh, women who wore the hijab um, or burqa felt uh, a pressure to uh, express that they were empowered women who were asserting their agency in wearing Mm -hmm. the veil. And uh, they had interactions that they conveyed to me where they had to say that, look, it is because I am American that I'm wearing the veil, that that I have the agency to choose to wear a veil. Uh, the fact that I'm wearing a veil makes me American just like you. It doesn't make me un-American, but it makes me American. And these are interactions that respondents are having uh, on the bus where people um, ask them about their veil. Why are you wearing the veil um, when you are in America? You don't have to wear it here. And then it puts a kind of burden to uh, these veiled women um to to uh, wrestle with their identity publicly right mm-hmm. and share that with uh with people around them um at the same time whether or not uh, one wore the veil meant that in moments of uh national security crises that it exposes them to hostility and danger uh, that it becomes risky um Uh, especially when I was collecting data um, after the San Bernardino attacks um, uh, by ISIS sympathizers, uh, there was uh, a lot of tension uh, on the ground. And uh, Facebook posts went out uh, urging hijabi sisters not to wear the veil, you know, wear a cap or something so so as to avoid... uh, Gen, you know generating any kind of hostile attention to them um uh, when there you uh, you mentioned the uh, the discourse in France about the veil uh my participants were aware of that uh, it signaled to them um a kind of global positioning of muslims especially muslim women uh in the uh, in in the margins of society that they were uh categorized as an other that there is no there is no space uh for uh muslims in western countries uh, it it it's it was it wasn't anything new to them but it reiterated to them their collective outsider
2: status um, yeah yeah thank you thank you for that answer it's so much to think about yeah
0: uh, it, is, it does raise a lot to think about, um, and it's, it's clear from, well, from reading the book as well, but from hearing you talk, um, just what an amazing job you were able to do of getting inside the, the world and the, the meanings of, um, of these South Asian immigrant women uh, and how, how sort of their, their daily lives uh, were affected by these broader geopolitical forces in, in places they weren't even from. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, to go back to, to sort of the the questions about fieldwork, um, one thing you mentioned that I found really interesting uh, was that you served as cultural advisor of the Bangladeshi Students Association. Um, so you're really putting the, the participant in participant observation. Um, so I wanted to know how how you thought that participating in this way and even in in what seemed like a leadership role, you know that they were drawing on your knowledge of of Bangladeshi history, for example, um, how do you think that affected the the relationships you were able to form um and also the the data that you gathered?
1: Yeah, well, that was a stroke of luck. Um, I didn't apply or anything. I knew someone in the Bangladeshi community who reached out to me asking if I would be willing to uh, to serve in this capacity, and I thought it would be since I want I strategically avoided political organizations and wanted to collect data in secular cultural spaces and there see if politics and religion ever comes up, not to sample on the dependent variable. Um, I thought that this would be a great way to enter uh, those kinds of spaces. Um, but I tried as much as possible to take a passive role that only speak up or only um, contribute when directly asked to give advice on something that, well, we want to do something for February 21st, Ekushe um, February. Uh, uh, and celebrate uh, Bangla as our mother tongue. Well, um, you know, should we? You know, how should we? Uh, uh, you know, write um, you know a, a social media post to commemorate this event, or um, how should we organize uh, this event? Um, we want to make a PowerPoint presentation to you know give an overview of this uh, day to the audience. Would you please make this? Uh, and and partner up with uh, another member, like have uh, have uh, co-present this presentation. Uh, And I would work with them to do something like that. But the goal was to take as much of a passive role and see what they were interested in doing, what their motivations were, to what extent this association engaged with other associations, and and what uh, you know why why sort why they were uh, closely linked to some associations and not others? What were the organizational tensions or cleavages? Um, so I think that that uh, gave me a lot of access to um, various news of cultural events that were going on that I could go and participate in as an observer or um, just have that insider access to see what are the tensions in organizations to put up a kind of united cultural front. Um, I actually also volunteered as a Bangla language teacher at a weekend Bangla school and for instance, one tension was uh, uh, should we open uh, our events with salam or uh, the Bangla secular word for welcome, which is shagutam, right? So these were very, uh, I thought, very interesting insider data that I was able to collect through organizations. Um, I wouldn't describe my role to, uh, as, as a leadership role. It was kind of, I would say, more like a sometimes consultant, but uh, it enabled me to look at the organizational side of things. When people got together uh, to collectively uh, uh, organize something, uh, what were important to them? How did they understand and define their culture or their religion, uh, their history, um, and what were the things that they wanted to communicate to people around them uh, from you know, people coming from other backgrounds
2: asking more generally about your different sites and different methods, uh, one thing that Alex and I were are often often like to know about from our um, from our guests is whether there were any specific uh, instances or interactions or embarrassing moments that you spent sleepless nights over? Um, I ask oh, because... oh well, th- well, many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also thinking specifically, you know, of those instances where your interlocutors assessed your own performance as a good Muslim American woman, whatever that means. And uh, I know that as a woman ethnographer in the field, uh, I had several of these uh, interactions where I just ended up leaving the space feeling... Either guilty or guilty of having performed a different self, or um, I felt like, you know, was I really being completely 100% honest about my politics, for instance? And yeah, I guess I was wondering if there were a couple of instances that you'd like to share with us, because I know that talking about our vulnerabilities in the field of the sense of community.
1: Uh, I just think that this question is so, so important. Um, because when, at least for me, when I was struggling with these um, ethical dilemmas, I felt ashamed. I felt that I could not share this with anyone because that would somehow make my project look bad or make me look bad. But of course, when you're doing ethnography, if you come out of the field feeling squeaky clean mm-hmm. um, and not a little dirty uh, because you're like, oh was I truly honestly myself or did I you know did I perform un- you know another version that is not as authentic? Uh, just to Mm -hmm. build a bridge uh, or generate more information and feel a little dishonest and, you know, uh, a little conflicted. Mm -hmm. If if you're not coming out of the field with these kinds of uh, uh, struggles, then maybe you haven't been reflexive enough. So that's something that I can understand in retrospect. But of course, when I was doing this project, uh, there were just so many things um and this is especially but this especially affected me because I consider myself more of an introvert than an extrovert, so it was hard enough for me to put myself out there um Another thing that we often don't talk about when we're doing ethnography is that when you just you know when you're not doing ethnography, when you are not in researcher mode and you meet new people um. You don't always click with everyone, right? It's totally normal. But when your project hinges on building relationships and building trust and, you know, making access into your field sites, you can't afford to not click Mm -hmm. with someone. Even if you feel that you're not clicking, you, you have to put in a lot of effort um, to make sure you those connections are still alive right that you can still continue collecting data that uh, is not the i think the healthiest approach in terms of mental health for the the, the researcher and mm-hmm. that is something that i struggled with a lot um, that i didn't feel um that as a person i i liked what i was seeing or how people perceived me whether it was as a you know, as a re, as a good Muslim girl who mm-hmm. who you know did everything her parents said. I mean, my parents are very supportive, but you know they know everything about it. But right. somehow having that pressure that oh, how how else can I convey to them that I'm a good Muslim girl? Or uh, on the flip side of thing, how else can I convey to my participants that hey, you know, I'm not always doing what my parents are telling me. I'm actually. You know, I, I, I'm actually quite independent. Uh, and just going back and forth uh, with these uh, performances of of self uh, obviously didn't sit well with me. I did spend countless um, sleepless nights uh, thinking about these things. and uh, uh, some uh, relationships uh, have also suffered. Uh, because when I was done with, with my fieldwork, I had to, again, struggle with uh, this dilemma that, you know, these people, uh, regardless of how they perceived me or regardless of how as a person these interactions were unpleasant for me, have welcomed me into their lives and have allowed me to ask them questions and gave gave me an insight into their lives. And for that, I'm so immensely grateful. But then is it fruitful for me as a person? Is it healthy for me as a person to continue these relationships? Um, And uh, a few relationships, I just had to let go because it it was creating a lot of pressure on me. And I, I just could not Continue. There was a level of toxicity that was hard to define, but something that, you know, again, going back to just some people not clicking. Um, And and I I think my biggest regret uh, or my biggest uh, dilemma and struggle has been making these decisions at the end of my field site that I am so immensely grateful to them. Then, when I'm not in researcher mode, because these relationships seep into, uh, you know, your your time when you are not a researcher, when you are just a person, uh, you know. Even though I'm so grateful to them, will I uh, continue giving, uh, you know, allowing them into my, into that space of my life? Mm. And I, uh, I had to um rely on therapy on my uh conversations with my family and just had to let them go and that is perhaps the thing that makes me you know feel the most conflicted mm. that's that's the bit of story that i don't tell in my book right that's yeah. a story that's hidden under the rug but that has been the biggest struggle i think
2: Yeah. And I'm so glad that you you said all of this because as you were speaking, I just kept going back to my own fieldwork experiences of, again, letting go of some participants because it was getting toxic in this very diffuse manner that I couldn't really define, but also struggling then to kind of incorporate it in the writing and it not really having any place in the final product that was my dissertation, right? And I was um, thinking of Patricia Richards and Rebecca Hansen's book, um, Harassed. And um, how they also talk about how there's no place in in academia almost to like have these sorts of discussions, which are so much a part of ethnography and so much of what, especially women and, um, you know, uh, and queer people uh, have to deal with in, in specific situations where um, fieldwork can get, can take a very different tone. And yeah. So again, thanks for, for sharing, uh, sharing your experiences with this. I'm sure it's helpful for especially, grad students in the field who are, who don't know what to do with this, um, yeah, with these extra feelings, you know, like what seem like excessive, but they're actually constituting fieldwork in everyday, in its everyday minutiae, yeah.
1: Well, thank you for allowing uh, this kind of space where we can have uh, such conversations. I wish I had some kind of uh, space like this when I was doing fieldwork, it would have certainly made me feel a little less lonely, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. That's the hope.
0: To, to shift gears uh, a little bit, Tassin, um, we were really interested in hearing about um, some of the ethnographic texts that inspired you uh, while you were writing. Um, so there were like books or, or articles even that were particularly you know that you followed as a model or that that you, that you really drew on in the writing process.
1: Okay, so I'm going to be completely honest. When I was um, doing um, my field work or when I was just designing this project, my motivation was not to read ethnographies, but to read anything on migration um, that I loved. Um, so i I read widely, not just ethnography. But when it was a moment of finding inspiration, mm-hmm. that I am I'm stuck. I don't know how to write, or it's, you know, the language isn't coming out oh well. It looks too forced. Uh, I did, I actually went and read novels, mm-hmm. um, and novels by migrant writers, immigrant writers, immigrant women writers, um, South Asian writers, writers like Amitabh Ghosh and Jhumpa Lahiri, and um uh you know Hamid uh Orhan Pamuk uh, and looked at how they played with words how are they telling a story relaying um, you know the minutiae of everyday life in such a way that it's a profound finding about life itself Uh, How are they, you know, what point of view are they taking? How are they using characters to drive their narrative? I think, and I always say this, that novelists make excellent ethnographers because they observe the tiniest uh, emotions, expressions of emotions, and and they can link it to larger experiences, human experiences um, happening. So whenever I felt stuck I didn't necessarily go back to ethnographies or migration scholarship, but I went back to non-academic writing. And I think that if there is anything, you guys think that my writing is accessible, I'm very glad you think so. But if there is anything that has influenced that um, the most, it's, it's probably that, uh, trying to emulate uh, writings of a storyteller. Rather than um a
2: researcher i mean it's it's um it's very validating because that's exactly what I did while writing my dissertation and that's also what Javier uh, Oyeru, who was uh, the second guest on our podcast said um so it is it is very validating because I do think you're you're so right it's like paying attention to people who are telling stories that uh, makes us better better writers or better ethnographers in in uh, in every sense um so we would love to end this interview on a high note and would be curious to know what you're working on now um, to the extent that we can, of course, work during a pandemic. Uh, but yeah, what can we expect to to read by you in the near future?
1: Um, so uh, I have two uh, goals. The first one is to um, apply the multi-centered relational framework or the elsewhere framework that I uh, um Offered in my in my book to other uh, immig- immigrant uh, groups. So I'm working on a paper where I apply the multi-centered relational framework on Irish Americans mm-hmm. uh, and look at how um, uh, even how um, Rome was seen as an elsewhere, um, mm-hmm. and how that how that elsewhere place affected how um, the Irish were treated in America as Catholics. Uh, so, that's the one paper that I'm looking at. I'm also applying the multi centered relational framework on Latinx communities and Black Muslim communities. Um, so, those are sets of papers that advance uh, the multi centered relational framework offered in my book. I have uh, very recently res- uh, been awarded um, uh, a big grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council here in Canada. Yay. That's awesome. Uh, To to fund what I hope will be my second book project, which is looking at interfaith and interracial uh, dating, uh, friendships, marriages, and divorces. Uh, So in my first book, I I, I centered uh, immigrants in a globalized setting at the intersection Mm -hmm. of here, there, and elsewhere, the homeland, hostland, and places beyond. What does that look like for immigrants in the, in their day to day lives in the most intimate of spaces? And I and I, and I thought about this a lot. Uh, there can't be anything more intimate than you know the person you choose to spend the rest of your life with, or the person you welcome into your home as a partner. At the same time, I think marriages and dating also. Uh, is uh, a lens that reveals to what extent your host society sees you as an equal, uh, uh, that they, that members of that hostland society are also welcoming you into their lives, into their intimate spaces. So I'm looking at uh, interracial and interfaith uh, relationships, and also looking at how they disintegrate, why they disintegrate. not integrate, so divorces as well. Uh, in Canada and the United States, and then looking at how borders and other global forces that I talk about in my first book play into these very intimate uh, spaces of immigrants'
2: lives. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. Thanks for that. And, you know, thanks for taking time out to talk with us today. We had such a such an enlightening and stimulating conversation and um, yeah, thank you, and we look forward to reading this this new work that that looks excellent. And again, congratulations on the big grant. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you so much for
1: uh, creating ethnographic marginalia and inviting me to talk about my uh, my fieldwork ex- experiences. I just hope that uh, you know, Sneha, you mentioned that you too had experiences doing uh, field work where you wrestle with your positionality. I hope that there is a conversation where we get to hear you guys speak about your field work uh, and we get to ask you questions.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> Maybe in the near future. We do have uh, our introductory episode, I believe, did some of that, but not to the extent that um, that we discussed today about the vulnerabilities of field work and all of that uh, mental you know, um, exhaustion that, that can entail. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a great idea. Um, and I just wanted to say Tassin that I think this was a really honest and insightful, uh, conversation. And, and I think it will really speak to, um, a lot of, a lot of field workers and be really, uh, useful and inspiring. Um, so we really appreciate you coming on and taking the time and congratulations on the grant and congratulations on a wonderful book.
1: Thank you so much, Alex.